0: Hi everybody, welcome to Horsepower Heritage, I'm Maurice Merrick, and greetings to all of you listening from places like Baltimore, Maryland, Hialeah, Florida, Santa Barbara, California, Abidjan, Ivory Coast, West Africa, Christchurch, New Zealand, and the Holy City of Jerusalem. So if you're new to the show, I want to say welcome, and I want you to know that I do my best to make every episode evergreen, meaning you can listen to just about anything from the back catalog and it'll still be fresh. It's not dated. And there's lots of great interviews and stories to choose from. So browse around and I know you'll enjoy it. And if you are new, click that follow button so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And if you like what you hear, tap that five-star rating, leave me a review. That really does help bring new listeners to the show and grow the audience. And I appreciate it. And this time around, we're talking about auto restoration. And if you've ever done any work on your own car, whether it's a classic or something fairly new, even if you're doing a brake job, you know it can be challenging to get it just right. <laughs> and I never get it right the first time. But anyway, it's also really rewarding to do your own work, but it makes you appreciate the professionals out there. So restoration topics are something you'll be hearing more of in the future. And today's show is all about interior restoration specifically. And my guests are two of the best guys in the business anywhere in the world. Rob O'Rourke is the founder and master coach trimmer at O'Rourke Coach Trimmers in West Sussex, England. And his right-hand man is AJ Pink, who's a trained coach trimmer himself, but he's also the business manager and he keeps everything running smoothly. Now, just to give you an idea, these guys have done interiors on scores of the most desirable vintage cars, Ferrari, Aston Martin, Porsche, Mercedes-Benz, and lots of others. So you're going to learn what goes into a pebble beach level job, let's say, the cream of the crop. And we also talked about some of the tricks of the trade and a few of their more challenging projects over the years. So it's a fun conversation. And that's coming up right after this. Hi guys, Maurice Merrick here, and I don't know about you, but I think Santa Claus is a car guy, which is why this year you should definitely put a pint-sized machine on your wish list from Model Citizen Diecast, like Kyosho's 1973 BMW 2002 TII in 118th scale, with doors that open and wheels that steer. Or how about the 1960 Le Mans-winning Briggs-Cunningham Corvette in 118th scale by Real Art Replicas? Or a collection of vintage racing Porsches in 143rd scale by Spark? Go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout and you'll get 10% off your order. Limitations apply. It's Model Citizen DieCast for Christmas because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Now my interview with Rob O'Rourke and A.J. Pink, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Rob and A.J., thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for having us. Good to see you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Really a pleasure. You know, as I told you before, A.J., when we were corresponding, this is a an angle on the classic car world that I haven't covered on the show, so I'm really excited to talk about it. I think that interior trim is, is sort of... A, an afterthought for some people when they're restoring a car. And of course, the cars that you guys are working on demand uh, a level of authenticity, I think, that that many cars just never see uh, because people cut corners. But I'm really excited to talk to you guys about your craft and a lot of the details that uh, that often get overlooked. So Rob, you're the founder of O'Rourke Coach Trimmers and you're a master trimmer, the master trimmer, in fact. How did the business get started? I used to work for my father, which is, has a fire
1: restoration company called Moto Technique. Uh, when I was 13, I used to pedal to work after school and help him or get in the way more likely. And I levitated, and pardon the pun, to go into the trim shop where I enjoyed the smells much more. And when the master trimmer of the time wasn't so busy or didn't need me, I'd go into a metal workshop or the paint booth and help those guys. So it's helped We have a nice background of abilities, um, which I've grown since. Um, When I left school, I went into my father's business until I was 32. And I was running my own trim shop underneath his business. And it was just a time to rev my own engines and spread out on my own my dad's 74 now and still running a great shop he does a lot of resto mods now and his business has really taken off and given him a, a real good lease of life and it's come at a great time of his career it's keeping him young and engrossed and i started my own business at 32 i'm 51 soon and my business has just grown and is just going well we're at a place where i never planned to be i'd never planned to be the, the leader of what what we'd do it was never even um, you couldn't even imagine getting there in the old days there was never the exposure that Instagram gives you there was one Ferrari owners club meeting and um, we're a different place now so I started my own business in West Sussex in England and um, found AJ in uh, on my trip to work
0: and AJ, you're also a trained trimmer as well, right? That's kind of how you came into the business.
2: Uh, no, I wasn't trained before I came in. Oh, I see. So my background was more in motorsports. So I left college. I'd always I've been obsessed with anything with wheels and engine um, since I can remember. I grew up near quite a popular car dealership in the UK. Um, and I used to walk past every morning on my way to nursery school. And just, yeah, from an early age have been sort of uh, obsessed with automobiles and went to college, studied motorsport engineering. Um, I then went on and I worked for a few privateer race teams doing a bit of spannering, but it was only a small sort of race weekend and I was working a few other jobs in between to try and sort of earn money and and keep myself busy. In one of the jobs, there was a convenience store and uh, yeah, one morning Rob came in to buy his milk and lunch on his way to work and he said, do any of your friends want a job working with classic cars? And I just sort of went, yeah, me, um, invited me over to the shop. I had no idea what he did because he had just
1: said, I work with classic cars. Well, it said coach trimming on the van.
2: It did, but I didn't really know what coach trimming was, was. trimming coaches.
0: Promise. Rob just, need, Rob just <coughs> needed a body, right? <laughs> he just needed a warm body. Exactly.
2: Uh, so anyway, I walked into his workshop and there's a Ferrari 275 DB6 Volante and a, a 1930s Rolls-Royce. Not spider. And a row of sewing machines. And I still hadn't quite clicked. Anyway, he started explaining what he did. I'll be honest, I was a bit unsure about sewing and and trimming and, and all of that coming from wanting to be in motorsports. And anyway, Rob said, you know, come and have a go, uh, which I did. And, well, here we are, 13 and a bit years later, um, still loving it. And, yeah, I've learned a lot. And between us, we've helped. Or I've helped Rob grow his business from what was a small thousand square foot, uh, sort of shed on a farm in West Sussex to now we're at a 6,000 square foot facility that we had custom built for ourselves. Um, yeah.
0: Wow. So, uh, a visit to the corner shop and 13 years later, here you are one of the premier trimmers in the world.
1: I do believe life is kind of set for you. You know, you, you make the endeavors in life. You try hard. You be as good as you can. And doors open. We're definitely on a path.
2: Yeah, I just saw an open door and walked through.
1: Yeah,
0: good for you. You hit the jackpot. In my opinion. <laughs> he did, yeah. Rob, you mentioned Ferrari. You guys have kind of specialized in Ferrari, right? Or at least you've gotten a reputation for really knowing those cars and, and, and how to trim them.
1: Yeah, uh, I think what's helped me is working for my father. When I left his business to start my own, I'd I'd already done many two fifty short wheelbases, two seven five Ferraris, Dinos. That was my kind of standard fare at his place. And so when I springboarded off on my own uh, ventures, I'd already done. I'd already had a back good back catalogue. So that was a massive help. Um, and we've done so many Ferraris since. I wouldn't say we're a Ferrari specialist, but we do attract that upper end work. Um, And I I kind of feel that when somebody's had a car restored, been very patient, spent a lot of money, they generally talk about the good aspects of the restoration and they also like to embellish on the poor parts of the service. And luckily for us, we always give our customers a good ride. And um, I think that does a lot of our talking when they're at social scenes, and they're talking around the table. Our name comes up, um, uh, and, and it's it's been a good tool in our um, tool chest of you know attracting the customers, having the right cars out there. Um, and we're we're quite a one stop shop in terms of we do welding, fabrication, mold making, foams, rubbers. So if a car comes here, we don't stop trimming because a panel is missing, a C frame needs replace. uh uh, foam moldings dilapidated we can do it all in-house so it gives us unique skills
0: yeah that's really good because i imagine that um there is a great deal of sort of fabrication involved no matter what because it's not as if you're going to order some of these parts online right i mean that's just not that's not a thing
1: well, downstairs, we've got a few things. So we've got a Lancia Aurelia we're doing. That's come to us with no interior. So we're making the seat frames, door panels, all the cat rails that go up into the roof from some visors. And then we, we'll have um, a, a very special car we've got downstairs, which the customer is looking after the interior. So the seats come out, the centre console, and we'll, we'll manufacture all of that so he can keep his original stuff up on the shelf, which ultimately... I guess, aids, um, the car's price, you know, lays it down the line doing the right thing. So it's usable. Now, uh, we tend to get into quite a bit of that. We just can't talk about it. <laughs> I didn't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the owner wants to use the car and enjoy the car, but he doesn't want it, The original interior to, um, degrade perish further perish. Yeah.
1: Uh, cottons get worn, uh, frayed and, you know, and split, and um and also the webbing gives away you know loses support under the seat so it's a good idea to
0: um even take them out making make new seats really so i would love to hear about some of the tricks of the trade you know um because i think it's i think coach trimming is a, a little bit of a dark art for a lot of us you know it's just not something that most people are willing to tackle if they're doing a restoration themselves you know and of course there's a lot of commercial upholstery available for for mass production cars but you guys of course do a lot of low production um and rare cars so let's talk about some of the tricks of the trade i mean how do you approach let let's say i bring you a car that's quite dilapidated inside how do you tackle that in general
1: if it's an original car that's fantastic because We'll document it, how it was fit, how it was screwed together, the materials used. Um, And if it is not an original car, then that's where AJ's expertise comes in. He'll do the research. He'll go and see a sister car. Um, So before we start, and also understanding the customer. so um, And sometimes um, we can educate them on the right thing to do for the car. Um, So it starts with stripping down of the car, preparation, patting it up. There's an awful lot of time spent in um, refitting the car with the clean dry panels so then we can uh, get nice gaps between the doors closing and, and not catching and it's a very fine line between what was acceptable then to what is now so people like symmetry, um screw holes to be in the same place on camp rails in the old days they often um, were not and there was a rudeness to the old trim You can make things a lot easier now and a lot better, but you can also lose the character of a car. So by using modern materials, there's some great materials there. One is a hard foam called Neoprene, which is great to shape and use on door panels, but it gives a very flat, straight look. And when we're curving, a lot of these old Ferraris, mainly a lot of Italian trim, has a lot of stretch in the material and a lot of shrinkage. So um, we're putting that back into cars where I've seen people make cars look too good and then they lose the heart and soul by using the wrong levers that are too matte um, don't have the right gloss level and also too flat so we keep a lot of character in our cars but then we have to let our customers know what we're doing if they want them as bad as they were we can do that Um, but generally we're trying to make things better and and tick both boxes Um, tricks of the trade in my last few years glues have got so much better so in the old days if we laid something down on a glued surface you couldn't re pull it up and lay the stitch line down and get it more straighter or um so the glues are better now you can lay something down and move it around and it's not pickling up underneath you scissors as silly as it sounds i used to use massive shears which were like two-handed gilbos and now we use japanese scissors the blades are so sharp um they've just they've really aided my uh, trim what would you say is-
2: I think the tricks of the trade is probably best answered by Rob because although I've trained in trimming and I spent six or seven years doing it I'm now sort of a few years out of doing it every day um, but I could certainly further some of the points that rob's made about where we maybe differ ourselves from um, a normal interior trim shop we're definitely I sort of say we're more of an interior restoration company rather than just retrim, And there's a big difference there. It's a very subtle change in the wording, but it's a huge difference in the sort of application of what we're doing. You know, a retrim is you take your car in, the trimmer takes the old covers off, they copy them, they put them back on. Any poor fitment, um, gaps, that kind of thing is sort of replicated, but just with new material whereas we're working hard to try and eradicate the the poor fitment and make things better than they ever were, but without, as Rob said, losing that character that the cars
1: had. Yeah, we don't make to the previous pattern. We'll, we'll make bespoke to the seats. So it is a re- very tailored fit.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because originally these cars were all hand-trimmed. It wasn't sort of a mass production assembly line approach to it right so you want to preserve a little bit of imperfection right so that when you look at the the trim work it's sort of got evidence of human hands on it right
1: totally yeah
2: there's definitely a look to a handmade interior in fact a great example um, of a project that we've done last year we were involved in a full retrim of a ferrari f12 so 2013 car Full retrim, and that car when it was new was a very, like, productionized trim job. It was all everything had been laser cut, machine sewn. It was kind of it was an assembly interior rather than a handcrafted thing. And the owner wanted to have that kind of bespoke, handmade feel to his Ferrari interior because he felt the interior in it. Although it was beautiful and it was lovely, and the materials were nice. And the design was stunning. He just said it felt like it could have been from any manufacturer, um, whether it be Mercedes or Aston Martin. He just said that it didn't have that kind of traditional handmade feel that he associated with owning something like a Ferrari. Um, And you look at that interior now and, you know, it's, it's incredible how good everything is. But you can see the fact it was done by hand. There are small imperfections here and there. The stitch lines, although they're straight, when they've been laid down, they might not be, you know, laser straight like the production pieces are. Um, and, I mean, you'd only really spot these things when you get up close and personal and you're touching and feeling it. But the difference uh, as an overall, when you get into it, it now feels like a lovely sort of handmade car, but it's 2013.
0: You know, oftentimes when a uh, car being restored, you find – artifacts in the car that you know maybe disappeared decades ago under a seat or under a dashboard or what have you have you guys ever found anything particularly interesting
1: mainly diamonds <laughs> 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 yeah um well we've retrimmed uh a few of the same cars we've done i've done um a porsche very very rare porsche a couple of times i've done the same ferrari short wheelbase three times what else and There's been a few 275s, 250s. Most trimmers right on the back of door panels, how the customer was um, and what was taking place on that day. So it, we see a lot of that, especially with my own work. Um, but no, sadly, you know, foreign money, not enough to run away. Um, um, one find we had last year, talking about the, uh, the Porsche Rob's
2: referring to as a 356 American Roadster. Uh, so there's only a handful of those. And it was done in the early 2000s by Rob to the, that particular owner's choice. He just said, these are the colours and the materials I want. And, and at that point, the discussion around originality and exactly how it should have been weren't as relevant as they are now. And it wasn't an original then, the interior? No, no. And it was a unoriginal interior that Rob replaced the first time. That owner decided it was time to move the car on, was putting it up for sale. And the the guys that were selling the car on his behalf said, this really needs to be back to original. It's such a significant car. And, you know, the way the market is now and and the demand for originality and how things should be. So the car came back to us. We started putting it back to original. And in the seats, we found uh, some New York Times from 1954 that had been rolled up and stuffed in between the springs probably to maybe quieten them down if they'd been a bit noisy or making some, some squeaks or something. So we do find odd bits of... And we
1: found the original green carpet under the seats.
2: Yeah, yeah. Aside from artefacts, we'll quite often find original bits of material. Um, so that,
1: that's lovely to help our archive. Any, anything original we find, you know, even hidden under the underlay where people are cutting corners or even under seat covers. People trim over their old covers to save time. Uh, that's a great find for us. That's more valuable to me than diamonds.
0: You know, what I would compare that to Rob is when you're trying to figure out what the original paint looked like on a car and you have to find a panel that's not been exposed to the sunlight. Absolutely.
1: And also a lot of these, um, paint codes or, you know, the books of the paint, uh, paint chips, the paint chips in the old days and levers. If they haven't been stored correctly, they'll show off a different color. If they've been in the sunlight all their lives or, um, looked after in someone's drawer, so, yeah. So you can't beat finding the real materials,
0: guys. Is there a big difference when you go from country to country in terms of how they the t- the materials they use and and how they put uh, interior trim together? Like, for example, uh, a Mercedes Benz versus a Ferrari or a Jaguar.
1: Um, I feel there is on English trim where you've got some difficulty uh, of uh, materials going around a dashboard. English in the old days would generally put a stitch line right on the front of a dash pad. So it would aid. You can cut two shapes, stitch them together, and it will help the material. The Italians would have heat and shrunk. Uh, Heated up helps shrink the lever. Um, Heating up vinyl helps stretch it. So you can play that over some lovely curves. Uh, German manufacturing was quite... they, They kind of understood the way to make money is to have mass production... Uh, So the seat covers would have been made and they're just fitted. So you'll see a lot on German uh, bases of seats, they would have like little metal nails sticking out. You'll wrap your material around and then fold the metal tabs over. You don't see that so much on Italian interiors. They're very much, they were still sewing pleats down and and then gluing around the leather. So the Italians, I felt, were much more uh, hands-on. It was a traditional interior much more skill-led. The Germans could just put covers on uh, the same both times. Uh, I don't know if this will translate well on radio, on on your podcast, sorry, but the the Italians drop the piping a lot on seats, so you've got a a nice curve on the side of a cushion and they drop a pipe in. I'm going off script now, but the Germans will have that easier, so you don't have the skill so much to pull those bits around.
0: Yeah, so the Italians... Their approach was a lot more labor-intensive, um, but it, it resulted in a more handcrafted final product. I think
1: it's the approach to manufacturing back then. We've come out of the war, and the Germans were doing a lot of repeat engineering. So if you took a any part of a 356 door off, you it would fit another 356. If you did the same on a Dino, maybe, or, or from the 250 model, you know you'd be very very lucky even door panels you know we cut them to the inside of the door rubber and they all have have differences and I'd love to have gone to a motor show if we went back into the old days of maybe the 20s or before to see like what Rolls-Royce were doing on their door panels they were doing beautiful wood marquetry which would blow your mind and you know the guys from Peugeot from France must have run across over there and just To look at the door panels on these old cars and i do feel sort of after the war there was a lot of clever people in england from jaguar bentley rolls-royce um aston martin and it was almost like trimming wars to do better than the italians italians to do better than the germans and it must have been great to have seen all these interiors coming together when top stitching double stitching diamond stitching all these um interiors started to come in and different materials and I guess a lot of that can go back to the war when materials changed. We went into the war sitting on maybe horsehair and straw and came out with um, latex mouldings, you know, waterproof materials. The needles on the army field were probably um, better for injections, and that led across to hand-stitching and sew machines. So that really has – pre-war to after-war, There's there was a big change in manufacturing
0: to how it was man-led to – machine rob you mentioned wood in interiors and so that that means that you guys also have to be woodworkers as well as for example a lot of english cars rolls royce in particular there's a lot of burl inside right is that hard to to source and match and make look authentic it's definitely
1: getting harder now yeah understanding how burls uh burls made but you can you we buy that one sheet form
2: the wood side of things, we don't have a huge amount of it in a lot of the cars we do. Um, Rob was very modest early and said we're not necessarily a Ferrari specialist. There's probably 70 or 80% of what we do is. And in a lot of the Ferraris, wood wasn't used so much. There might have been a wooden fascia on a dash, but it wasn't like a lot of, say, the British cars where it was, you know, this exquisite sort of high end furniture feel to the wood. It was kind of just. Like a nice piece of veneer, nicely finished, fairly straightforward to, to sort of restore or reproduce if required. Um, but certainly the other discussion around wood is the fabrication side, you know uh, fabricating the the panels that are needed to then trim. Uh, so obviously we've got within our facility we've got a fabrication shops, so we've got wood and metal um, fabrication facilities here. We've got uh, composite manufacturing facilities, and then we've also got the ability to make foams and rubber and plastic parts that we've all got in-house and, and can basically make all of the pieces that we need to create an interior as well as retrim one.
0: Hey, by the way, I just was thinking about you know, pre-war Bentleys. Oftentimes, those cars, as well as some other luxury cars of that era, had Painted leather applied to the coachwork. Is that right?
2: Yeah, there was quite often leather covered bodies, especially in that, yeah, the pre war, the vintage era, if you like uh, Bentley's Rolls Royces. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, fabric or leather covered
0: bodies. Yeah, I was just curious because obviously that's a specialty. It seems like it's a specialty unto itself.
2: Yeah. It is, but it's kind of like just trimming a very large panel. The the same rules apply with the shapes and getting the shrink and the stretch right of those materials, being able to hide your joins, making sure you get your piece out um, large enough to get to the joins, and that's where you'll see the, the joining strips on the bodies to cover up any joints between the hides.
1: We certainly wouldn't shy away from that. No.
2: A lot of the specialists that dealt in those vintage era of cars are slowly disappearing and we are seeing a larger increase in customers coming to us for some of the vintage cars as as the skill sets sort of disappear and and the younger guys that are getting into it they're few and far between uh which is something i'd like to come back to actually about bringing on the next generation because it's something we're very passionate about but the guys that are getting into it they want to get into sports cars not vintage cars for the most part, you know, there, there'll be some that are drawn towards the, the vintage era. So, yeah, we are starting to see an increase in the demand for, from our customers on, on the vintage side of things.
0: Guys, what is the most challenging interior you've ever had to retrim? I, I can easily answer that. It's my own car. I've just um, <laughs> restored a Volkswagen Type 34,
1: but I've gone really off piece with everything. I love a simple interior. That fits well and um this is not that, but you'll probably see that um, soon on the internet. Um the most difficult interior, what would you say that was? Well,
2: I can answer mine. Gone. I, I think the the most the biggest project for me that I was involved in, especially at a trim level, was we got involved in the restoration of the Demaxian um and the first sort of major recreation of um car two of the Damaxians. And I'm not sure if you or your listeners are aware of that that car and and its story, but it's certainly an interesting one to look up.
0: Yeah, that's the uh Buckminster Fuller rear rear engine, front wheel drive, rear-wheel steering. It's 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 like an airplane without wings. Exactly. Yeah, look it up on YouTube, Dymexian car. Fascinating car.
2: Yeah, so we were involved in the recreation of car three. So car two is the only remaining original. Uh, It's in the Nevada State Museum, I believe. Now, the British collector attempted to purchase that car. The museum obviously didn't want to sell it, but agreed to lend him the car. And as a sort of thank you, as part of the deal of lending it, he agreed to visually restore the car because it was in a bit of a state. Um, So we ended up trimming not only the recreation of car three, but we also did the interior of the original car two. Neither car had a single panel um, when they came to us. I think for car three, the recreation, uh, Rob spent something like 120 hours fabricating interior panels. You know, there's a huge amount of glass in that car and around every window needed a bespoke panel to curve around it. Uh, again, if your listeners want to look at the pictures there's some not only on our website but all across the internet of the work carried out um and yeah that was just a huge challenge uh, and that was quite early on in my trimming career so it was a great a great car to be involved with to learn about and yeah all of the processes that we had to do to create that interior were a big challenge certainly for me at the time
0: so when the when the dymaxion came to you what was your initial assessment of its condition
2: so by the time we'll start with car two the original car by the time that came to us it had already been painted all of the wood that was rotten had been replaced um, in the sort of the interior substructure if you like Um, so it was effectively a bare cabin there was some remnants of the front seat frames so they were kind of restored ready to be built up and trimmed um, the main thing with that car was the research side of it, trying to find any photographs. And obviously, we're dealing with you know, 1930s photography here. So any photos were generally of either people working on the car. There's a few photographs of celebrities that were taken out for a ride in the car. Uh, but I think we we ended up with about between 10 and 15 photographs that had any relevance to the interior to go by. Um, We did happen to find on the front seats, what was left of them, a few scraps of uh, some corduroy material. So we had that remanufactured as close as we could to sort of retrim the car in the correct materials. Yeah, really, it was was pretty much a bare cabin with a handful of bits that they managed to salvage and sent with the car. Um, and then car three was just a complete blank canvas. It was, you know, it was a new car, so we had to create and then trim the interior.
0: Horsepower Heritage will be back right after this. Hey, if you're enjoying this episode, check out my interview with Brandon Hegedus of Alberta, Canada, who built an incredible replica of a Ferrari Tipo 156 in his garage. That's the famous shark-nose Ferrari Formula One car you really didn't know how deep you had gone. Like you, you really, you didn't know what you didn't know.
2: Right. Yeah. I had, cause I had thoughts in the beginning. Like, I mean, my garage is not huge. This is a 22 by 22 garage. And I mean, I'm not like some wealthy guy. Like I'm your average father of four kids, husband, like carpenter, like I'm nothing fancy. I'm, I'm a nobody in this. And so There was no real major planning. There was no planning like, okay, I'm gonna build this exact. At the time it was, maybe I build it six inches shorter to fit the garage a little better, or maybe I build it a little bit narrower, or, you know, maybe a hot, essentially maybe I hot rod it a little bit. And at that point I was glad I didn't, I hadn't resto modded or
0: compromised. That's episode 33 from August 4th, 2021. And now back to the show. Guys, I want to ask you about some very distinct specialty interiors that, uh, you know, one of the things that I find interesting about uh, the older competition Ferraris is that they had blue upholstery. And I've been told there's, a, there's sort of a, a superstitious lore behind that. Do you know that story, Rob? I've, I've heard it was made out of mechanics overalls
1: is that what you're um and i, I just can't believe overalls when they opened up you know and they've got legs on them that there was enough material to do that um
0: successfully but what what have you heard well what i heard was that they were preparing a car for a race and they were down to the wire and i think it was the night before and they had overlooked the fact that the the seat hadn't been trimmed yet so they didn't have any material available and they just improvised with a set of coveralls and they were blue and the car won the race. So that was that was then considered a good omen. And from then on, they used blue material on the seats in certain competition Ferraris.
1: I hope to strip a seat off one day and I'll find the old um, ovals underneath there. But as of yet, that hasn't happened. But uh, I'd like to believe that was true. And I'm sure there's a you know good tale in that.
0: You know, it's interesting. We were talking earlier about the differences between uh, cars of different nationalities. The German manufacturers, you know, square weave carpet, cocoa mats, uh, even like later on the MB Tex vinyl material. That's really, really hard wearing stuff. Really good stuff. Very Germanic. Yeah. And they had very high quality manufacturing, as you say. What about leather, though? Because leather, I'm sure, varies. I know, you know, when you're selecting hides, this is a natural material, right? There's there's scarring and marks. How difficult is it to get the hides to match and, and to look just right?
2: So we work very closely with the Connolly family. Um, Connolly leather, for anyone that doesn't know, were the main supplier to most high-end European automotive manufacturers from kind of the 20s all the way through into the 90s. Um, They sort of famously supplied Ferrari, which is why we use them a lot. The family now remake the original Vomol leathers, which were used in that time period, sort of post-war through to kind of... it. They stopped being used in cars in sort of the, the 70s and 80s, as we started using more elaborate designs, the leather wasn't quite so suitable and they changed. Um, but we use that material a lot. I'd say 80% of our projects end up with that Connolly Vomole leather. It is a natural leather, as you mentioned. So there are scars and, and marks from the animal's you know, life. So you do have to work around those. And you have to, almost like a tailor, you have all your patterns and you lay them out on the hide and you match them up. So if you're cutting your seat, for example, you want everything to match all of the the parts to be cut in a similar area so that when the seat goes together, all of the grain kind of matches and flows from one side through to the other. And then you've got something like a door panel where obviously you've got often quite a large expanse of plain leather and you need to find a nice piece there that you can cut that out of with any of these natural marks showing. So in regards between an older leather and a, a modern leather, say a modern leather that you could buy, um, you would probably get a yield of 95%. You'd be able to use nearly all of the hide. Whereas the Vomol, for for our level of work, where we want to get as few imperfections as possible in the job, and our customers are prepared to maybe take an extra hide on the job to ensure we get the best cuts, we might see 70% yield on, on
0: the leather. AJ, what term are you using for the Connolly leather? Vomold? VOMOL. V-A-U-M-O-L. Is that like their trademark name for their particular hides or?
2: Yeah. So that was, if you like a range of leather that they produced, uh, Quite quite a number of years, and in total, there's over I believe over three thousand colours that they produced in Vomol for various applications. Uh, Connolly were and still are the sort of royal warrant holder in the UK for supply of leather. So all of the royal palaces, uh, the House of Commons, the House of Lords, all of those kind of royal institutions in the UK, any leather will be Connolly, and most of it is Vomol. And then they've got their own specific colors. Bentley, Rolls-Royce, they had their own choices of colors. Ferrari, you know, everyone had their Conley Vauxmoles that they preferred to put into the cars.
1: Um, it's also very customer-led. Some customers, uh, we've, we've done a beautiful 212 Ferrari, and the customer wanted it beaten up and looking like it had been pulled out of the 50s. And um, he wanted to use scarred leather, easily marked leather. So we use an aniline with lots of scars. We've recently done a 250 GTE and the customer wanted no scars. So we ended up buying many more hides so we could get all of our cuts out um, and, and going that way. So, you know, it's customer led as well, what they want. I think there's nothing worse than seeing a scar right in front of the dash when you're driving. You know, so choosing the cuts and the whole hide is different. Under the belly of the cow, it's much more wrinkly, more hairy on the back. It makes it more stretchy, which is good for binnacles, gear knobs, backs in the seats we'd use it. Places you don't see, we'd use it. But um, we very carefully mark out all of our cuts to get the most out of a hide.
0: I'm really interested to hear about these Lancia Aurelia Outlaws that you've done. You've done a few of them now, right? And uh, that's, a, that's an interesting car that probably a lot of my american listeners don't know about but you know it's a an italian gt car from the 1950s and most of the time you see these aurelias they're restored or they're preserved cars but these outlaws are a totally different animal
1: earlier you say what's your most challenging car these cars come to us without an interior so we make the seat frames um and the company we do them for forney kellum they do a lot of the intricate aluminum work on the can up in the roof but the majority of it is left to us as well the rear seats and the cu- they let the customers have a big say in the interiors the colors um and how they want them and um so it's a real it's a real nice canvas to work to because we're satisfying the customer and um the restorer and it's not like when we restore a ferrari and it's a a, a red car with a black interior I've done so many of them. The Thornley Kellam cars are quite wacky colour schemes and it makes our job interesting and, and a bit of fun. So there's that aspect of it. Yeah,
2: and, and the cars are, as you say, they're, you know, they're quite special in the sense that what Thornley Kellam are doing is they're taking these standard Aurelias and, and the ones that they're using for these projects were cars that maybe were beyond the point of restoring to an original specification because the car didn't justify what was required, but because they cut so much of the original metal and things away to, to create the, the car that they've built it, you can justify using the, the chassis to end up as one of their, their outlaws. And then when it comes to the interior side, it's, it's a complete bespoke project. As Rob said, you know, the customer can, within reason, have whatever they like. Um, we've been involved in cars four, five, and six. And then we're going to be involved in cars seven, eight, and nine, which is their full run. So they're only building nine of these cars. Um, and yeah, so we've got we've got four left to do, including the one in the workshop now.
0: Yeah, I'm just looking on your website at one of the cars. And uh, so it's got uh, bucketed and bolstered like sport seats front and rear Um, some quilted inserts on the uh, door cards and on the seating surfaces. And yeah, just really, really lovely, but obviously bespoke.
2: So that car that you're looking at, or in fact, most of them, the, uh, the original Lancia Aurelia seat is a bench seat. So, you know, Thornley have up the power, they've sorted the suspension. It's got big brakes Good tyres, you know these are these are a good handling performance car. So a bench seat wasn't going to cut it. So they sort of came to us and said, "Well, what you guys make your own seat frames for a number of fifties uh, and sixties Italian cars? What have you got that would look good and work well in in these Aurelias?" And we ended up on a, a modified version of a Ferrari two hundred and seventy five seat that they slightly customized our frames that we manufacture to fit within the roll cage and the cabin of of the Aurelia.
0: You know, I sat in an Aurelia a few years ago, and it, of course, had a bench seat. It was an original car, and it was incredibly uncomfortable. The seat isn't adjustable, so, you know, I actually saved myself a lot of money. Now I don't have to – I know I'm not going to fit or be comfortable in one.
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, what you need to do is buy one and then install a set of uh, 275 seats.
0: That's right. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Do you know where we can get some from? I do. (laughs) I know a couple of guys. They might even give me a deal. I think they will. <laughs> AJ, you've got to be part detective and part technician when you're researching these interiors and, and you, you want an authentic final product. So you know, how do you go about doing that?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a huge part of my role um, and it's become more and more important as the years have gone on and the, uh, the interest of the market is more towards originality and correctness. Um, something we've touched on through the interview is when we do find photographs, they're often in black and white. Um, the amount of times I've been researching a car and the only photographs I can find have got an interior with a passenger and a driver in it, and I can't see anything. Um, and if you can, it's all kind of blurry because it's either been shot through the window or the car's moving. It just wasn't something people seemed to take photographs of. And I'm sure after this, there'll be tons of people going, oh, I've got loads of photos from motorsports. Send them over. And and what have you. But uh, yeah, trying to find them on the internet and in the books is quite difficult. So over the years, we've built up a library of sort of automotive research books. If we see something that's being written by a mark expert on a particular model that's relevant to what we do, we'll always sort of try and get hold of a copy um we've also got this amazing archive of original trim that rob has been able to keep through his career in the early days especially in the sort of 90s and early 2000s there was a lot of original cars still that came in for a retrim because they were tired not necessarily as part of a restoration they might have had paint and a trim and a good service Um, and it was more of like a sort of overhaul rather than a restoration but uh we'd get to or rob would get to the end of the job and we've got this pile of original leather and vinyl and carpets and bits and pieces and you would say to the owner what, what would you like us to do with the old stuff and they just went what do i want that for you know i've got my new interior throw it in the bin and unfortunately for us now rob had the foresight to go actually this could be quite useful one day and he just kept all these boxes and other our old workshop We had this tiny little store loft that was about three foot high and you kind of had to crawl around up there and it was just full of cardboard boxes, full of interiors with just, you know, Ferrari 250 short wheelbase with the name of the owner or the chassis number um, written on them. And now we've got this room that we've dedicated as an archive and we've got everything is split up into models. It's all labeled up and we've got all these pieces from a number of cars of original door panels. We've got full carpet sets, seat covers, and it's become this invaluable resource for us that we can go back and we can look at what material was used, where a screw went. And we've had customers, especially with some of the early Ferraris, you know, Ferrari was selling road cars to go racing. Um, It was all about how much money can we get out of selling road cars to fund racing. That was all Enzo was interested in, was winning races. So some of the early cars, there was a lot of vinyl involved with a bit of leather. And we've had cars, we go, well, no, it's a Ferrari. It's a, you know, they're the best of the best. Of course it would have had all leather. We can just walk them into the archive, pull out a box of the model we're discussing and just show them the evidence that if they had a good match on the colour for vinyl to leather they would have used quite a large amount of vinyl in the interiors and at the very least it would have been things like all of the pipings the bindings because pipings and bindings are you can lose half a hide of leather in a car just to piping and binding because you need to cut these big long strips out so it's just this incredible asset that we have and we continue to grow uh Often now, if we do happen to get an original interior, the owners now want to keep the interior with the car, which is the right thing to do, and we understand it. But again, not all of them want to do that. Um, We even recently had a a customer that, in the early 2000s, Rob trimmed a 254. He wanted to keep the original interior. Uh, A few years back, he phoned us up and said, I've sold the car. The new owner didn't want the old interior. Would you like it? So, of course, we... Gladly accepted. Uh, took him out for a nice lunch as thank you because he wouldn't accept any form of payment. And yeah, so we've added another. Um, and then our archive goes from, you know, a huge range of Ferrari models, Mercedes Goldwings, wings, a number of 356s from pre-A's through to C's, early 911s, uh, E-types, anything we've done where there's been, yeah, number of Lamborghinis, Muras, Countachs, Dimexians. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I've spent hours and hours researching, um, photographs, reading race reports, just trying to find any, any photographs of, of these cars where you can get a glimmer into the interior and try and gain some information of how they should have been.
0: Yeah. It's an important reference library. And I mean, you, you couldn't do your job without it, right? No, not, not the way we carry
2: out our interiors, um, trying to get that correctness.
0: By the way, there's another project that you guys did, which is really fun, and it's unique. And I'm talking about the Fiat Panda four by four. I knew you just looked like you were going to say that. <laughs> so this is this is kind of like a uh, a marketing thing for Turnbull and Asser, right? Which are uh, sort of a legendary men's tailor in uh, in London.
2: Yeah, correct. So Turnbull and Asser have got a huge roster of. Uh, celebrities and and big names as clientele over the years from uh until recently they've done every US president uh the royal family in in the UK Winston Churchill Charlie yeah. Chaplin um uh, yeah uh James Bond all of the all of the Bond films they've supplied all the shirting for and uh one of our good customers is on the board there at, at Turnbull and Asser and he kind of wanted to do a bit of a fun marketing project and bought this this pound of 4x4 and uh said look can you guys take it on and we thought yeah a bit of fun so car turned up and then he he sent his favorite fab or cloths from the terminal and NASA range of their own uh cloths that they manufacture or have manufactured um down and pretty much just said do what you think looks good and um there's photographs and a bit of video on on the website or on our youtube channel for for the listeners to go and have a look at but yeah that was a really fun project
0: yeah it's pretty neat i mean there are patterns in the interior that you you normally wouldn't see next to one another but um it's a great demonstration of sort of the Turnbull and asser range and it's a fun car you know the panda is so lovable it's a uh, it's a bit of like an Italian Volkswagen in a sense too. And uh, it's it's become a modern classic in recent years, so very cool. Yeah.
2: And I believe the car's actually headed out to to LA, so you know some of your US-based listeners may even see it driving around. So if they spot a uh, Ferrari Posse Blue Fiat Panda 4x4, it's probably that one.
0: I'm going to keep my eye out. Guys, I know that it's not just a business. You've got a passion for this and and your concerned about passing it on to the next generation right so i know that's a, a, an important thing and i think we should touch on that
2: yeah i mean just yesterday i spent the day up at, there's a site in the uk called Bista heritage which is an old RAF base that's been converted into a a location for classic automotive culture to be preserved if you like um and on that site there's a company that have set up uh, what's called the Heritage Skills Academy. And they've got two different courses, a mechanical-based one, and a relatively new and suddenly quite relevant to our business. Uh, it's co- called Coach Work and Trim, or Coach Building and Trim. And we've taken on recently two apprentices, a 16 and, a, and an 18-year-old, one just at, straight from school and one straight from college. And they're both going to go on to this course to learn kind of on the course. They're more going to learn about the, the fabrication side of what we do and the maybe less of the trim, which they can learn from us. But for us, it's, it's vital for this trade to kind of train up the, the next generation and keep passing these skills down, you know, as Rob did to me. Um, and then we've also got another really nice story. One of our guys, Lorenzo, his father was the tr- the master trimmer at motor technique when Rob was there as a, a young lad. So Rob learnt his early skills from Lorenzo's father. And now Rob's passing those skills back into, you know, the family there and, and his son's now learning from us.
0: Yeah, that's terrific. And there are programs like that here in the United States as well. And It's important because the the real masters of all of these trades, whether it's coach, trim, or machinists, doesn't matter what it is, a lot of them are retiring and the businesses are disappearing.
1: I think there also gets to a point in your life where your eyesight goes, your fingers um, can lose a lot of their strength and um, dexterity and um and also your belly can get in the way (laughs) so um it's good to bring the youngsters through because as you get older you don't want to be upside down under these cars especially the the old cars they're very small in the cabins and um it's no place for an old man
0: by the way do cars come to you sometimes a customer says this car has to be on the lawn at pebble beach in two months
1: absolutely so um also a, a good point to point out is a customer has been very patient buying the car stripping the car having it dipped uh the bodywork, the paint the engine the electrics it's come to us the budget's gone um and they've got two weeks for a car to be on the lawn and aj is very good at getting um good time to you know do our job which we need And and a good budget as well, which, you know, under those circumstances, we can really, really turn out lovely work. So there's not a great TV show here um, running around, having no budget and no time to do something. That's just not us. We like we like cars to leave here. Perfect. Um, And another thing we've sort of enrolled into our practice is AJ with fresh eyes will come down when we finish the car and he'll snag it after we've personally snagged it. He'll snag it and it's quite demoralizing he'll he'll get a a good list up of where a quarter panel won't fit the rubber perfectly or something that can be improved or a screw head that's not straight so we like to have it a car could leave us and recently one's left us and gone straight on a pebble beach lawn and done very well so that's the kind of standard we set out Being like we're at the top of our game and it's staying there is the you know we could rest on our laurels but we refuse to
2: just going to say ultimately we we only work to one standard so if someone comes to us and says oh can you just do a quick job on on this you know i don't really care what it looks like we're the wrong company for you that that's not something we're prepared to take on because you know we've got to a point with our business now where there's kind of an expected standard if someone says that's got an overall interior you know we make sure we've got the time to deliver what we see as an overall interior which means we need that extra bit of time at the end just to make sure everything's just so. And there's none of this, oh yeah, we're just finishing putting it together and it can be on the trailer this afternoon. It's No, it's got to be right. And if it means the car needs to stay another day or two, that's how it is. Because ultimately, the customer wants that car to be absolutely perfect when they get it back at the end of their restoration. And because we're normally one of the very last people to touch the car we um inherit everybody else's small delays through a you know sometimes these cars are in restoration three four or more years and everything you know it's run a week late here a couple of weeks there a few days there suddenly you get to the end of it and it's six eight months behind initially where you thought you were going to see a car and um yeah normally the owner's patience has run out by then and they just want their car back but
0: well i've seen your work for myself and it is incredibly impressive if people want to check out what we're talking about, you can go to coachtrimmers.com. I'll put links in the show notes. And also your Instagram is O'Rourke Coach Trimmers. And we've got a YouTube channel as well with a lot of our cars we feature on there.
1: Yeah, excellent. Jason can like and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very good at the YouTube and AJ's, AJ's the man at that. I'd rather be doing it and gluing it.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, listen, guys, really fun to talk with you. Rob O'Rourke. AJ Pink, lots of fun today. I appreciate your time, and uh, I learned a lot. (laughs) Thank
2: you very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. And as I said when we spoke before, when you uh, make it over to the
1: UK, you'll have to come and visit, and we'll give you a tour of the shop. Or any of your listeners. They'll get tea and biscuits and a tour of the shop as well. (laughs) Fantastic. Can't lose. Love you much. Take care of yourself. Thanks, Maurice.
0: That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. Don't forget to click that follow button, leave me five stars, and a quick review. You can also go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP to support the show. I'll see you back here on Wednesday, November 30th for a highly conceptual episode when we'll be talking about movie magic, sci-fi vehicles, futurism, sports cars, emerging technology in the auto industry, and more. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.